What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked on Vikings. I'm your host. I'm your pal. I'm the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. I am so happy to be with you today. You can follow me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can follow the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. And hey, if you listen in your car, why don't you just ask your smart device, play podcast Locked on Vikings. If you say those words to it, it'll just find the latest episode for you. You don't have to push a button. You don't have to lift a finger. Great for your morning or evening commute. So we are rapidly approaching some pretty important deadlines in the NFL offseason, and I wanted to talk about those. We are going to do a little bit on the franchise tag and transition tag. Teams have been allowed to designate players for these these tags since February 19th. They have until March 5th, so I figure we should talk about some of the Vikings candidates and just how it works and if they should do it. That's going to be the main topic of today, but we do have a little bit of news to go over. The Vikings themselves have still been pretty quiet, and they don't really have a whole lot to do except for potentially extending uh, Anthony Barr and Sheldon Richardson and whoever else. But elsewhere in the league, things that are of relevance to the Vikings have been happening pretty much daily, and we'll try to cover as much as we can. Uh, The Browns, for example, re-signed their left tackle, Greg Robinson. This is probably not a guy that the Vikings were going to look at seriously, except maybe as a backup. Uh, but it is, you know, one less guy on the market. And, and like we kind of have talked about in some of the economics episodes we've done, that does kind of up the price of everybody else, right? When when something gets more scarce, this is true of every commodity in the world, and I think football players kind of work the same way. When something gets more scarce, it becomes more valuable to have one, right? Because it's that much harder to get one. Now that said, you know, Greg Robinson wasn't going to compete with any of the other major tackles like Trent Brown or like we've talked about Kendall Lamb on this. Nobody's going to pick Greg Robinson over these guys. So good for him for re-signing with the Browns. It was like a really small deal anyways, probably small news, but worth touching on because the Vikings are going to be in the market for another tackle, even though they have uh, Brian O'Neill and Riley Reef under contract. And Mike Remmers, if they choose to use him as as, as a tackle as well, they still have room to improve and should probably be in that market. Moving on, there was another uh, hashtag old friend who had some movement in the market today. That was Captain Munnerlyn. Uh, the Carolina Panthers are not going to proceed with him on the roster, so he will hit the open market. And if the Vikings didn't already have two promising slot corners in Mike Hughes, who looked reasonable as a rookie first-round pick, and Mackenzie Alexander, who came on so strong at the end of last year. If it weren't for those two guys, I think the Vikings would probably be really interested, like, immediately. I think Munnerlyn ends up going elsewhere. Uh, That said, it would make me really happy to see him on the Vikings for no other reason than I just liked him when he was here. He was just a really cool guy. It doesn't make a lot of sense with the state of the Vikings roster and the state of their salary cap for them to really spend at slot corner at this point. They're pretty set at that position. I mean, they could even put Xavier Rhodes there if it came down to that. So I I highly doubt that they would go after him, but come on, that'd be so much fun. And the last piece of free agency news that I'm going to touch on is that the Baltimore Ravens just recently released or informed Michael Crabtree about his impending release and the Vikings are in the market for a wide receiver three. So naturally, this prompted a little bit of discussion and speculation. So I actually wanted to look into how Michael Crabtree did in Baltimore because he's kind of been all over the place, right? He was like a pretty interesting force in San Francisco worth watching. And then he had like a kind of weird year in Oakland and now a weird year in Baltimore. So I wanted to just like look at his recent performances to see what kind of wide receiver he is. And I think the most alarming thing I found, and really any Ravens fan will tell you this, is that his hands were a disaster. He actually had the same drop percentage as Laquan Treadwell. 
He's probably a little better than Laquan Treadwell. He, he graded a little higher. He was a little bit more productive than Treadwell uh, and was more efficient on like a per route run basis, which can kind of help you adjust against, you know, how often Laquan Treadwell was like on the bench or not necessarily in a play. Michael Crabtree still is better even after you factor that in. So it would make sense for the Vikings to pursue him if they just wanted to improve and get like a better version of Laquan Treadwell. But like that shouldn't be the goal, right? Like you should want to get good players, not just players who are slightly better than your bad players. I really see Michael Crabtree right now as like a slightly less problematic Laquan Treadwell. You don't fix the drops issue. You don't really fix the production issue. You just make it a little less bad. Like, he's not a solution at wide receiver three. He's just less of a problem. So personally, I wouldn't be that interested. But it does make the team better than it would be if they did nothing. So for whatever that's worth, I think it's true. So the only other piece of news that I want to touch on before we get to the main topic of the episode is this whole Robert Kraft thing. I haven't talked about it on the show yet, and I should touch on it. Uh, So if you are not keeping up with the news of the NFL in February, can't blame you. Here's what's going on. Robert Kraft was just indicted for two misdemeanor counts of soliciting prostitution, basically. He went to a happy ending style massage parlor in Florida on the morning of the AFC championship, which is wild in its own right, solicited some explicit services, we'll call it, and now he was caught on camera doing that, and now he's been indicted for the the misdemeanor charge that that entails. This would be a kind of funny story uh, if it weren't for the fact that that particular place was not just a prostitution ring, it was a human trafficking ring. And there's a difference between those two things, right? There's one thing when there's, like, willing people, you know, selling themselves, and that's a whole, like, like more consensual industry versus human trafficking, which is not consensual. It's people being held against their will and being forced to do things that are pretty unsavory. And I think the general consensus is that it's pretty unlikely that the patrons of this organization didn't know that or, like, weren't aware of, you know, the unsavory reasons that they were able to access this particular service. And I think it speaks to, like, a larger problem that the NFL is going to face here. This isn't the first time that an NFL owner has been in trouble. This isn't the last time an NFL owner will be in trouble. I mean, Jim Ursay got arrested. There was even a problem with our own Vikings owners. The Wilfs had some, like, white-collar crime issues. NFL owners, on the whole, don't really have the reputation for being, like, stand-up guys. And that's an issue when they're the powerful men and women driving the entire shape of the league. I mean, they vote on all of the major decisions that get happened at the league-wide level. They're on the competition committees. They're the ones making huge decisions. And when a lot of the reasons that they're in the news are negative, that casts kind of a shadow on the rest of the NFL. But on the other hand, I don't know what you do to solve it if you are the NFL, if you're Roger Goodell or whatever. The statement right now from the NFL is like, we're going to handle this like we would handle anything in the conduct policy, but what are you going to do? Suspend him for a few games so he can't sit in the booth? It's not like that that really feels like much of a punishment, but I'm not really sure what the right answer is. It's a sticky situation, and I certainly don't envy the people that have to make that decision. But this is not a Patriots podcast, this is a Vikings podcast, and the Vikings have some interesting decisions coming up that they'll have to have decided, like, really within the next week here. So we're going to talk about the franchise tag and the transition tag and stuff, I'm going to step away to a quick ad break, and when we come back, we will hit all this in depth. And we're back, so let's talk about the franchise tag. If you are listening to this show, you probably know a little bit about what it is, and you've probably heard it be thrown around with names like Le'Veon Bell or Demarcus Lawrence or like here Anthony Barr and Sheldon Richardson and in a nutshell what it means is a one-year deal 
worth a whole bunch of money, which is basically just an extension of whatever that guy's contract already was, and it's basically supposed to buy you time to renegotiate like a real contract, and sometimes it's just a desperation move for a team that knows it probably only has one year of contention left, and it just needs to hold on to you for one year, but very, it's very much like a short-term high-money deal. And the point of it is basically to solve this problem. Imagine you're a team and you have a player that you drafted who had kind of a rough start to his career. Say somebody like Mackenzie Alexander, or to some people, Anthony Barr actually falls in this category. But then, in the last year of his deal, he explodes. He goes completely, like, balls out, right? And you want to hang on to him. You say, oh, wow, he made it, he finally developed, he fixed whatever the problem is that was holding him back earlier in his career, and we want to keep him. But we just learned that he was good, you know, in like week 11 of the last year of his contract. So we haven't really had time to like work out a deal. So you slap the franchise tag on him, which is not something the player has a lot of say in. But the idea is that it's supposed to be such a big money deal that the player's never going to have a problem with it. So the franchise tag is the average of the top five salaries of that player's position. So if you were to franchise tag, say, Sheldon Richardson, take the average of the top five defensive tackle salaries and give him one year of that. So for, say, Sheldon Richardson, that'd be like $15 million and change for one year of Sheldon Richardson. So the idea, say the Vikings did that with Sheldon Richardson, right? We're going to franchise tag you, we're going to pay you $15 million for this one year, and now you're under contract with us. The idea would be, all right, and we're really, we're going to try to actually negotiate a real contract with you. We just can't get it done before the end of the league year, and we don't want you to be exposed to free agency where other teams can start putting in offers. We want the rights to you, so we're going to slap the franchise tag on you, but we're going to get you a real deal by, you know, June, so it'll all be fine. And sometimes teams do this, and sometimes they do like a tag and trade. Well, they'll slap that franchise tag on them and then say, hey, we've got a year worth of of rights, of exclusive negotiating rights with this player, and you get to have them for the next year. Who wants to pay us for that? And somebody might, you know, trade a, a, a draft pick or whatever for those rights, and then they take on the contract, and then they maybe will negotiate an extension, and things will work out that way. So for the team, it's a really advantageous thing, even though it tends to cost a lot of money, because sometimes if it's a player that's playing very well, or somebody coming off of a rookie contract who's a superstar, it could mean paying them less than they would have made anyways, and you basically just get to delay a big giant money deal. Take Demarcus Lawrence, for example. He's a defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys. He's a total superstar. He's going to get a huge money deal. If the Cowboys extend him, it wouldn't surprise me to see him become like the highest paid defender in football, even higher than like Aaron Donald. And while Aaron Donald is, you know, this like otherworldly player, he signed last year and the salary cap goes up every year. So it's going to kind of inflate contracts. So whoever really signed the most recently is very often going to be toward the top of contracts anyways. So for Demarcus Lawrence, he just wants to sign a real extension. And if he gets a real extension, screw this franchise tag thing. I'm going to get even more money than that probably because instead of being an average of the top five you know, defensive end contracts, he'll just be the top defensive end contract and he gets more stability. So like, you know, what if Demarcus Lawrence tears his Achilles while he's playing on, on the franchise tag? That would be disastrous for him, but there's really no downside to the team. So, you know, this happened with Le'Veon Bell. He basically refused to play under the franchise tag, and it caused a huge issue in Pittsburgh. Long story short, players don't really like it, and it's kind of something that in in the, like, original negotiation of the CBA, it was supposed to be a fair deal, right? You know, you get the exclusive rights, and the player doesn't get a lot of say in it, but they get this, like, totally huge contract, 
and that should be satisfying, but unfortunately it's being used on guys who would have gotten an even bigger contract if it weren't for the franchise tag. But it doesn't end there. There's actually another option called the transition tag that kind of helps to mitigate a few of these problems. So the transition tag at its core is the same logic, right? A huge one-year deal. But instead of the top five players at your position, it's the average of the top 10 salaries of your position. So it'll be a little bit cheaper, right? And so why don't teams just use this one all the time because it's the same thing but cheaper? Well, because it comes with a provision where players can actually hear and entertain offers from other teams. So say the Vikings instead transition tag Sheldon Richardson, the value of that would be like $12 million and change. But the original team still gets a whole bunch of power. They get first right of refusal. So say the Vikings transition tag Sheldon Richardson, and then a team like, I don't know, the Seahawks come in and say, I want to match that offer. I actually want to offer you more money than this transition tag money. Uh, Sheldon Richardson would be able to take that deal, but not before the Vikings got a chance to match it. And if they do match it, they just get a worded Sheldon Richardson and nobody else has any say in it. So it's kind of like a watered down version of the franchise tag that we're mostly familiar with. So with the franchise tag and the transition tag, there, there's another difference, and that's like what happens if the player basically quote-unquote breaks the rules. Because they're not just like priced into, you know, if the franchise tag gets slapped on Sheldon Richardson, it's play for the Vikings or don't play at all. That's actually not how it works. Sheldon Richardson could still leave the Vikings and take a deal with, say, the Seahawks. But with the franchise tag, the Vikings would actually get two first-round picks as compensation. So it's essentially this like huge, huge penalty that would make it so that no team will really touch a franchise-tagged player anyways. But technically, you could get out from under it. There's another type of franchise tag that's like not used very often called the exclusive franchise tag, where, no, you just can't even negotiate with other players or with other teams. So if they use the exclusive franchise tag, then Sheldon Richardson went and like negotiated with Seattle. Seattle would actually get in trouble for that. And the difference is that if 120% of your salary is higher than the average of the five contracts that you would have gotten under the franchise tag, you actually get the like higher thing. So you sometimes would get extra money for that like extra exclusivity. Most of the time that doesn't really come into play, so you don't really have to worry about it. With the transition tag, the watered down version, if Sheldon Richardson left for the Seahawks and the Vikings didn't match, well because they kind of got the chance to match and didn't, they actually don't get any compensation and that's kind of the the reason that teams don't really go with that one very often, they if they're going to you know slap a giant contract onto somebody for exclusive negotiating rights, they're going to take the thing with exclusive negotiating rights. So if you remember, we talked about free agency, uh, I think it was like a week or two ago, and we talked about it being an auction market, essentially a market where both players and teams kind of control the rates, right? A player can choose between different teams depending on who offers a better package, and teams can like choose how much they're going to offer to a player. And, and that two-sided dynamic kind of makes for some interesting patterns. Well, the franchise tag kind of throws a wrench in the whole thing because essentially, if you slap a franchise tag on somebody, you are taking it out of the player's hands because no other team's going to offer, right? They don't want to risk, you know, having to give up the two first-round picks and it's probably a huge contract anyways. They kind of just will look elsewhere to fill their need. So while we talked a whole bunch about it being like an auction market and all the interesting stuff that that means, it's not a pure auction market, right? Because there's tools that teams can use to kind of take all those variables out of it. And that makes a whole bunch of sense when you have a player who is an absolute stud and superstar, you know, top three at his position, kind of like the Marcus Lawrence, honestly, 
and you don't want to pay him for that right away, you can delay that, franchise tag him for a year, which is probably less than he would have been making if you extended him, and then you know move on from there afterwards or use it as a negotiating window. It's a much more useful tool for teams than I think the original CBA intended, and I think it gets some like bad press for that. But we're not really here to like litigate the pros and cons of the franchise tag existing in general. We're here to talk about whether or not the Vikings should use the franchise tag or the transition tag or whatever. So I'm going to step away really quick, and when I come back, we'll talk about Barr and Sheldon and how this actually relates to the Vikings of 2019. All right, we are back. So let's talk about the Vikings options with the franchise tag. So technically you can use this on any impending free agent. The Vikings could use the franchise tag on Rashad Hill if they really wanted to, but it doesn't really make sense if you look at their list of of impending free agents to use it on anybody but Anthony Barr or Sheldon Richardson. Everybody else could either be extended for a much lower price or they're restricted free agents, which works completely differently. And if you're going to slap a huge contract onto somebody to keep them for one more year, it really only makes sense to do so with a player that's like worth that amount of money. So let's talk about whether or not even these guys are worth that amount of money. So Sheldon Richardson, if he played on the franchise tag, would be paid like a top five defensive tackle by definition. It'd be about $15 million. We're not really going to talk about the transition tag because teams don't really use it as often. Uh, The franchise tag is really the most common option. and, And for simplicity's sake, we'll just say it would be a $15 million paycheck. So uh, Sheldon Richardson made in 2018 $8 million with $3 million in incentives. That made him the eighth highest paid defensive tackle in 2018. And if you slapped the franchise tag on him for 2019, he'd be paid in the top five. So up there with like Geno Atkins and Malik Jackson and so on. And I don't think that paying him a contract like that really means that it's like a statement that, hey, we think he's a, fo- a top five defensive tackle because the franchise tag isn't really about that, right? It's not about declaring that this guy's a top five talent. It's paying him a top five salary in exchange for essentially taking away all flexibility and all long-term stability, which is something that players value really highly. But that kind of leads itself to a question, right? Like, what is the right level of play for a guy to be worth the franchise tag? And to me, I think it's extending him. If he plays on the franchise tag well enough that you extend him long term, then I think that franchise tag was worth it as kind of a bridge to get to that point. Like if the Vikings franchise tag Sheldon Richardson, Sheldon Richardson balls out in 2019 and then they sign him to a five year deal, he retires a Viking and he's known as a Viking for the rest of his his like post football life. That I think would be like worth it, right? Or really any kind of like long term extension coming out of it. So I think the question about both Barr and Richardson is, do the Vikings want to extend these guys? And and I talked about this in one of the very first shows that I did after the season ended uh, about, you know, Barr and Richardson and even like Trey Waynes, who should be due for an extension in July if the Vikings are into that. But it's been a while since that conversation. And if we're going to talk about franchise tags, I think it it makes sense to revisit the, the merits of these guys just for the purposes of context and stuff. So let's go into the production of Sheldon Richardson. I think he had a really nice year, but my opinion isn't the one that matters, and there's a lot of people who are smarter than me, particularly at PFF, who are charting both data that we can use and the grades that we can also cross-reference it with. So let's take a look at all that. So if you just look at Sheldon Richardson's raw PFF grade on the whole, overall everything, he ranks 51st among qualifying defensive tackles, which if you think about it, every team has two defensive tackles, so that's 64 starters. He's squarely in starters, but probably, you know, the second best defensive tackle on most teams and maybe not starting on some other teams if you just went by his PFF grade in 2018. But I think that 
kind of bears a, a deeper look, right? Because what do we actually expect from a three technique defensive tackle? You know, the, with defensive tackles, like there's your Linval Joseph, who's supposed to be big and get in the way. He plays nose tackle. He plays like more centrally in the middle a lot. And Sheldon Richardson is almost like a third defensive end sometimes where he's just pass rushing from the B gap. And that's like a much different job that requires a much different skill set. You have to have a certain like quick step for Mike Zimmer's defense. And I do think he fits that. And in pass rushing grade, he ranked 39th. That's a lot better. That's still not, you know, he's probably not the best defensive tackle on most teams, but that's still a much better thing. And if you look at the free agents that are coming around, it becomes a lot less likely that the Vikings can actually improve on this guy if they let him walk. And if you just look at his raw statistics, his raw pass rushing productivity, and if you remember that from the pass rushing episode, we kind of praised him as like a really big pass rushing force. That's because he ranked 16th in the league among qualifying defensive tackles at this. And all that stat is, is like your pressures per snap, basically, and it counts a little more if you get a sack. So from, from that, like just raw production perspective, he was a lot more productive than his grades would tell you. And that's basically PFF saying that, you know, sometimes his grades were maybe unearned or sometimes maybe he got in there a little bit freely or he got like cleanup pressures because somebody else did a good play or something. So it makes sense to kind of pay a little attention to that. And he's probably not the 16th best defensive tackle in the league, but I would say that he is firmly like a pretty good starter. Now, is that worth a huge extension or 15 million? Eh, I'm not that convinced, although I wouldn't be mad, and I think he is a really good fit for what Zimmer wants in that position. Um, I don't know if the Vikings can get a better guy in free agency, so it makes sense to try to keep that around, but if they maybe franchise-tagged him and then tried to draft a replacement and you really only needed one year to bridge that gap, that would be a sensical move. With the way the Vikings cap is right now, spending $15 million on Sheldon Richardson doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're going to spend big money at the three-technique position, extend a guy long-term. I I don't think the one-year thing really makes a lot of sense, especially when they're trying to continue to be like a long-term team. You know, they're trying to be the kind of team that contends every year, not one that just contends this year and then falls apart. So I, I wouldn't really expect them to franchise tag Sheldon Richardson. So moving on to Anthony Barr, we can look at his production in kind of the same way on like a per snap basis, right? And starting with coverage, which is something that I think Anthony Barr got vilified for a lot early in the season, and rightfully so. He gave up a whole bunch of yards and he screwed up a bunch of things, especially in that Rams game where a lot of those plays like weren't really his fault, but they were still in his coverage. And I think you have to have like some level of responsibility for that. And then he turned it on and he ended up in the season, including those bad games at the beginning on the whole season. He ended up being the third most productive cover linebacker in football. That is elite. I mean, that is like completely irreplaceable from a linebacker, but that's not all a linebacker does, right? They have to be in there for run support. And with Anthony Barr specifically, you have to be a pass rusher and going by that same pass rushing productivity statistic, Anthony Barr was the best pass rushing linebacker in football. He was the most productive with a minimum snap count, of course, but he was the most productive one. That is unbelievably incredible. And and keep in mind that the way that PFF sorts these things, they sort out guys like Justin Houston and Vaughn Miller who are technically listed as linebackers, but come on, they're edge rushers. Uh, They they kind of sort that into a different category than Anthony Barr. So he's not... uh, being compared to like guys like that but just in terms of like off ball you know classic linebackers Anthony Barr was basically the most productive one when he blitzed and looking at his PFF grades this all pretty much backs it up it's all in the high 70s low 80s and and that makes sense it's essentially PFF saying yeah no this those stats are legit he's probably not the best one in the league and maybe there were times when that's inflated but yeah no he's a legit player 
And then real quickly moving on to run defense for both of these guys, because I didn't mention it for Sheldon Richardson. Uh, There's been like kind of a narrative going around about both of these guys that because the Vikings actually kind of ended the season giving up a whole bunch of rush yards that, you know, it it, like reflects poorly on the guys in the middle, like uh, like Sheldon Richardson and the linebackers like Anthony Barr. But I would caution those narratives because oftentimes you see it based on just total rush yards, which remember in a lot of those games, the Vikings were losing or those games were very slow, you know, getting rolled up on the ground by the Bears in a game where they're leading two scores in the fourth quarter. Well, they're going to run every play and you're just going to give up more, more rush yards. So be careful about that. That said, we can still look at their ability as players to stop the run. And in terms of run stop percentage, Sheldon Richardson among defensive tackles ranked 71st. So yeah, no, he was not that productive in the run, and that was pretty disappointing considering his reputation. Anthony Barr among linebackers ranked 90th in that statistic, and the PFF grades in those categories kind of, again, they back up that data, so we know there's nothing weird or fishy going on. So for both of these players, run defense was kind of a struggle for them, and if that's a reason enough for you to not want to extend or franchise tag these guys, I totally understand. Personally, I don't think that's the most important thing that these guys do. I think pass rushing is more important and for Anthony Barr coverage is more important. So I'm going to focus more on those things. If the Vikings did franchise tag Anthony Barr, it would again be like $15 million. And I think if you're interested in keeping Anthony Barr, you should just try to get a deal done first and a franchise tag. If the Vikings did franchise tag Barr, I would hope that it's the kind of situation where you like franchise tag him and then, you know, get a real deal worked out before that actually hits the cap. And in that case, you can kind of rip up the franchise tag and say, okay, now we're going with this contract. And and if the player agrees to that, then, you know, it'll work out that way under the cap. So I I don't think that it's a likely option for either player. I think if anything, you're just going to extend one of them. But if we did see it, we were definitely more likely to see it with Anthony Barr. So that was a brief overview of what the, the franchise tag and the transition tag and all that stuff actually means and whether or not the Vikings are likely to use it. Smart Money says no, but stranger things certainly have happened. So thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Locked on Vikings. I will talk to you all tomorrow and skull.